Green, Green Left Weekly, Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line um, for your presenters today, we have myself, Jacob Antwafer. And me, Zane. So it has um, been quite a big, a bit of a big week, I think, a big past kind of week in terms of news. And we have a pretty big program kind of packed. Um, It is actually tomorrow is going to be the International Working Day of the World, um, May Day. Um, and it's going to be a bit of a special event. And I would just like to sort of plug that FreeCR itself will be having a special um, live May Day program. And basically, there'll be all sorts of programs basically have covering different themes and areas of May Day, including giving live streams of the upcoming May Day rallies. So just thought I'd give that a bit of a plug. And I guess before I get into the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today and Green Left Radio is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Okay, so what what's the kind of news story you want to kind of start off a bit of a discussion about, um, Zane? Uh, I was having a bit of a sword fight with someone on um, on. Uh, Jonathan Sree's um, Facebook page, that's the Greens councillor from Brisbane, um, uh, in response to, uh, I think it's Mike Pizzullo, the Defence Secretary, saying that the drums of war are beating and that people can hear the drums of war beating and, and basically it was a veiled insinuation that there might be a war between the US and China happening very soon over the question of Taiwan. And this person was commenting on Jonathan Sree's page saying Australia should support this. And this person was like a appeared to be a Greens supporter from my brief stalking of his profile picture that I did. And it struck me that there are people out there who are generally kind of leftish leaning, progressive ish people, uh, but who kind of end up getting mm, hoodwinked into supporting U.S. imperial um, aggression towards China and Australia participating in that. And I think this is part of a broader issue with that recent book, whatever it's called, Red Peril by Clive Hamilton. I think it's Uh, called something along the lines of silent invasion. Yeah. So I I think... um, Given that Clive Hamilton comes from that um, progressive background, he used to be sort of at the helm at the Australia Institute, um, there's this kind of, I guess, left sinophobia, uh, like this sort of support for US imperialism dressed in progressive drag. 
Um, now, I'm not an expert on Taiwanese history, and I'm hoping that in coming weeks we'll be able to interview someone about that. But the basic idea, that my, my basic condensed understanding about Taiwan is that when the Chinese Revolution happened, the sort of the ruling class, the capitalists, were sort of chased off the mainland and gathered their forces and retreated to Taiwan and took with them all of China's gold reserves. So you had this sort of artificial island that had a bunch of capital and US backing, and that was in the context of the Cold War. And it's only now, several decades later, that China, that mainland China has become sort of wealthy and strong enough to be able to assert that Taiwan is part of China and we don't support it remaining separate. On the other hand, progressives on the ground in Taiwan, it's kind of akin to Hong Kong, where people don't necessarily want Taiwan to just be gobbled up by uh, kind of the Stalinist Chinese state. And so uh, it's a complex issue. However, I don't think the answer to that complex issue is for progressives to support Australia participating in a war against China over the question of Taiwan. It's a complex issue, but it's fundamentally, in my view, an issue for the Taiwanese people and the and the Chinese people to sort out. There can be international solidarity from places like Australia. There can be protests here, but I do not see any argument for the Australian military to be participating in a war over Taiwan. Should that happen now, in five years, in ten years? It's, it's, it's got nothing to do with the defence of Australia. We don't go and start a war with Sri Lanka because we don't like them occupying Tamil country. We don't go and deploy the Australian Navy off the coast of Israel and start shooting at Israel and start a war there because we don't like Israel's illegal occupation of Palestine. And it's the same with Taiwan. Like, I just don't see any argument for the Australian army getting well, involved in, in a... One of, one of the, I think one of the things as well is... I, I don't have. I don't actually trust sincerely that any of the imperialist powers have like a sincere reason for wanting to have a war with um, with China. You know, they can use the pretense of Taiwan as as an excuse, like. But I don't think that really is in the main game in terms of the interest, because really, hypocritically, the um, the gov the U.S. governments are always are going on sort of always like wanting to criticise China for its treatment of the Uyghurs, which I think is fair, that what, what China is doing there is, I think, terrible. But it is, I think, it is actually a distraction from what their actual kind of agenda is. And the actual agenda of these imperialist powers is they are more or less threatened by the fact that China is a rising economic power. It is starting to form economic relationships with country other sort of developing countries that they used to have a relationship with of course that the relationship being that of exploitation and of course the chinese government to state to its credit is probably offering better deals to some of these developing countries although of course not all of it's actually good but it's like in contrast to what the u.s kind of typical kind of western imperialist kind of agenda typically is and i think that's really 
the basis of a of a socialist analysis should be actually pointing out that actually the the imperialist powers are not motivated by any benevolent reason. It's really about their own in, um, imperialist sort of interest, mm. and they're prepared to to probably start a war over it. And the other thing to say here is how many countries has China invaded over the last. 70 years since the Chinese Revolution, or, or probably even going further back than that, versus how many countries the US has invaded. How many how many coup d'etats has the US supported over the last 50, 60, 70 years versus how many China has supported? And how many people are locked up in prison in the United States versus in China? People go on about how China is repressive this and repressive that, and there's certainly truth there. I'm not trying to make out like China is this mystical workers' paradise and everyone has heaps of liberty there. But the fact is, you're much more likely to get locked up and put in jail arbitrarily in the United States than you are in China. There's something like 22% of the entire global prison population is in the United States. And Black Lives Matter protesters have made the case... You can't say that if you're locked up in China, you're a political prisoner, whereas if you're locked up in the USA, you're somehow not political. It's political. People are locked up for the colour of their skin. It is race oppression enforced through the prison system. So, yeah, the idea that the United States has some gleaming record on human rights compared to China is is also bullshit. And it's. I think it sort of speaks to, I think, the importance, I think, of the left having its sort of own independent sort of analysis. We're not tailing behind what these liberal democracies kind of say, because there's really, when it comes to the US and how they evaluate democracies around the world, really it's not, they, they like to say that they have this whole rational kind of framework for how they kind of evaluate democracy. But when you look at some of the trends, you can look at countries like, for example, countries that are frequently kind of praised by the Western press as being ideal democracies. One example is um, has been India, been, has, has been frequently praised by the West as this ideal kind of democracy, especially compared to, the, to, to China, in contrast to China, because China and India are kind of similar countries um, dem- in terms of, like, the size, etc. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great democracy. Narendra Modi supporters go around and beat the crap out of people that dare protest against and, them. And also, um, they're, they're, um, as we'll kind of do in an interview later for, um, in this, on this program, they're actually repressing, um, literally de- requesting Facebook and Twitter delete the profiles or posts of people who dare to criticise Modi's response to COVID-19. So I think... There's all these sort of hypocrisies, really, when it comes to how governments around the world evaluate, you know, democracies. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of art. There's, a, they always seem to have some, a lot to say against China, but seem to have little to say about some of their, their closest sort of allies. Mm. And in, and India, I think, is a case in point because really, all the all the Western governments around the world. Oh, the Philippines is actually another good example. We have our world Western leaders go on about how great Duterte and Modi are, and yet have no condem- condemnation of their of those of those countries' attacks on democratic rights. Hmm. But and I think just one last kind of point. I do want to just sort of take it back to this whole question because I think there's been a lot of interesting things in the media with 
Peter Dutton, for example, making some, I think, pretty repugnant sort of comments about how we have to prepare for war against China. Now, I have actually, there has been sort of a bit of a strand of different sort of debates about this, about whether whether the the Australian um, pol- Australian politicians are actually being, you know, are actually really being serious about this prospects of war against China, because there are also some economic analysis or other sort of people who would argue that, oh, well, Australia has nothing to benefit from a war against China, economically kind of speaking, because actually we depend a lot on trade with with mm. China. Mm. But, of course, if if it's the case that they're not being sincere, and, of course, I'm not saying that I necessarily agree completely with that because the government is so... The Australian government, we have to be honest, that they're so wedded to the US in terms of, um, in terms of its military kind of alliance... Um, that it's actually very much possible that they, all these liberal politicians are completely sincere and they are preparing for, for some potential. But on the other hand, the other question is, it could just all be part of their xenophobic sort of, sort of agenda in terms of actually just trying to win, wedge support for their, for their politics and especially in terms of elections by driving up the nationalism and, ra- and racism. And you know, there's a whole history of governments around the world using the threat of war to brush up kind of nationalism in order to kind of win votes. So that's sort of mm. like the kind of point I kind of want to make in terms of this whole context we're kind of finding ourselves in. Um, cause I'm still, it doesn't feel right now, it doesn't feel like right now is sort of the immediate moment where we're likely to see a war, but mm. it's like the, the, the fact that the government politicians are flirting with the idea, I think is terrifying in itself and it must mm. be opposed. Yeah, I think as we saw with uh, xenophobia around refugees, which was originally sort of to win votes, the thing gathered its own momentum and resulted in ever more like evil and repressive torturing of refugees, putting them in outback detention camps and then closing the outback camps and putting them on Manus and Nauru. With uh, Islamophobia... That, again, was promoted as a way of of drumming up um, sort of like nationalism and winning votes. But that has resulted, that's that's given oxygen to neo-Nazi groups. And I think it's it's also important to oppose xenophobia right now because I think you're absolutely right. It's being used as an electoral divide and conquer sort of tool, a weapon of mass distraction. Uh, But... The longer we have, you know, the mainstreaming of xenophobia, the more that's going to give oxygen to far right groups to to kind of uh, mutate that xenophobia into really ugly and violent um, hatred. And we will see people of Asian appearance, whether they're Chinese or from one of the many other countries in Asia that isn't China, we'll see Asian people getting you know, violently attacked in the streets by people who've been whipped up into this kind of racist frenzy. So, yeah, I think it's really important to to push back against this. Yeah. Well, I might just go play a quick announcement um, and conclude this discussion for a bit, and then we'll go on to the next part of the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM, and I'll just go and I'll play an announcement. 
Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Now, just wanted to um, bring up a bit of a, um, a kind of news story from the pages, I guess, of Green Left. And that is about a, a whole case, uh, a court case that is currently happening in Turkey. Basically, a bit of background here is the HDP, which is like the third largest party in Turkish parliament, is like a left-wing um democratic sort of socialist um, party, although I think it has all sorts of different sort of tendencies in it as well. One of the things that the HDP is characterised at is that it's um, it has its uncompromising support for the Kurdish struggle. And of course, it is a party that has many Kurdish members in its ranks. Now, 108 leading members of this party are basically facing a show trial on April 26th, i.e. it's happened on a, it's still ongoing, that could see them all imprisoned um, for life. Now, to give you a bit of an example, there's been a whole trend, and we've been reporting on this for Green Left Radio, of HDP members being criminalised by the Turkish state, because the Turkish state is intensely authoritarian, and of course it is anti-Kurdish, um, in fact, that's been one of the foundational things around the Turkish state. It's, it's oppression of the Kurds. And essentially, it's, it would be almost like, you know, this trend of, um, MPs of this, of the HDP being arrested or detained, etc. It's almost like it's equivalent to if the federal government here started jailing Greens MPs or started arresting them on the spot. That's the scary kind of situation that's kind of really unfolding right now, um, in, in Turkey. And I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a real kind of attack on democratic rights. And I think it is going to be important for, you know, people around the community internationally and within Turkey. And of course, there's, there's been, there's been protests in Turkey and campaigning all around this. We'll have to stand, um, in solidarity with because really it's like this is a, a serious kind of attack on democratic rights. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have necessarily kind of time to go into all the detail of, of the background of what's happening. I just recommend that you go on to, um, Green Left, um, .org.au and check the article, The Kabani Case, a Turkish show trial, which goes in a bit into the background on everything that's kind of happening with this trial. Yeah, and keep an eye out for solidarity actions here in Melbourne in coming weeks. Okay, well, I'll just go play a quick interview and we might go and on to our first interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. I wanna drop smooth, not bombs Hot trains, water, skipping, every info shop 
when I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road, and I had like this feast with a carrot, and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff, and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. All right. Um, you are listening to Green Left um, Radio and... On the, we're going to be doing, for our first interview for the program, we're going to be interviewing, um, Sue Ball, um, from Green Left. Basically, Sue Ball has just recently written an article on, on the whole 1998, um, MUA kind of dispute, um, which was a very far reaching kind of workers kind of dispute. And, Sue Umbull, um, happened to be, um, happened to be part of, a, I guess, the solidarity campaign supporting, um, supporting this ongoing industrial dispute, um, in Sydney, or, well, I think they were living in Canberra at the time, but they, um, they kind of reported about, um, yeah, they were writing about how they were kind of a witness to all the kind of solidarity and we're going to sort of have a bit of a discussion with her about, you know, the significance of this dispute, um, especially in the lead up to May Day. Um, so yeah, good morning, Sue. Hi, how are you going? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. So, I guess maybe to start off for our listeners, so especially for our listeners um, who are might not necessarily that familiar with the history. In fact, my, me, myself, I'm not completely that familiar with the history. What can you, I guess, give us a bit of an overview of the 1998 sort of MUA um, dispute? Yeah, well, what was really significant was that at the time, the trade union movement as a, as a whole was probably was a lot stronger than it is today. I was actually living in Canberra at the time, but the dispute was happening on the in the waterfront in all of the major cities in Australia. And what had happened is um, Corrigan, who was the owner of Patrick's, which was one of the um, water, waterfront companies and still is today, a major waterfront company, um, decided that, that they did not want to deal with... Um, the MUA, the Maritime Union of Australia, any longer in their, in their waterfront. They wanted to be able to control their own labour force and not have the union um, interfering, as they as they sort of saw it, in any of the um, management practices and the practices that employed people in the waterfront. So they decided that they were going to completely change their labour practices and bring in contractors who were non-union companies and try and eliminate the unions from the waterfront. Now, the reason why it was so significant is that the various different unions that actually made up the MUA, and remember, the MUA, like many unions today, is is actually an amalgamation of a number of different um, unions, Um, and... You know, like the, the Siemens Union and, and the various different um, waterfront unions of the day, they'd fought long and hard to change employment practices. So traditionally, 100-odd years ago, 
the practice on the waterfront was that um, workers would turn up and then the companies would just choose who they wanted for the day and everyone else could essentially get stuffed. And what the union had done over the years was to uh, make it a, a practice that the union um, played that role so that everybody, so the work was fairly shared around and everybody got a fair go and there's no discrimination. And it's that that Corrigan wanted to break. Mm. So he, with his company, they then essentially locked out all the union members and then brought in these non-union companies. And they did it in a really grotesque way where they just brought in what we called scabs because they were scabs, many of whom had balaclavas on and it was all very cloak and dagger. And meanwhile, the Howard government, which had only been elected about two years before, supported all of this and thought this was just fantastic because if they could break the power of the union on the waterfront, they could break the power of the union of unions everywhere. Mm. So that's what it was about. And what can you tell us, because um, you, um, you recount this kind of a, amazing kind of story of a massive protest one of, at one of the sort of cli- um, climatic kind of points of the campaign at Melbourne's East Swanson Dock. And I wanted to kind of hear your comments on some of the, the kind of pivotal kind of points in this sort of campaign. Okay. Well, it was, so what had happened, um, I think it was, got to get the dates right here, but it was in April, April of um, 1998. So... Very dramatically, Corrigan sends in his scabs to shut the ports, to kick out all the union members and shut the ports. And the union movement still had the capacity and probably still does if we wanted to flex our muscle. But, of course, we never flex our muscle like this anymore. The union movement rallied really quickly, led by the MUA and, of course, then later on the ACTU, to get down to every port and... um, set up picket lines. And the MUAs set up the picket lines and then unionists from all over the country would come down. So in my case, I was living in Canberra. Um, we had a pretty strong union movement at the time. Then, interestingly, by the public service union because we were the biggest union in Canberra at that time. And what we'd do is we'd get everybody together, get on a bus and go out and help a picket line. So it was our turn in in the experience that I had to get up to the Darling Harbour one, and that's what I write about in the Greenland article. But the most significant picket lines were probably the one in Botany in Sydney and the one in Melbourne. Um, And really, I think all eyes continuously throughout the dispute were on the Melbourne one. And the reason why is because Melbourne, of course, is, is and still is and was then, the most unionised capital city in Australia and the strongest wing of the trade union movement was here. So it was really Patrick's and the Howard government really wanted to do whatever they could to break the Melbourne ones. Um, And so that was critical. And everyone knew this. So everybody from all over Victoria, every unionist was doing their damnedest to get down to the picket line and help out. Now, Part of the reason why that was happening too was because the MUA was injuncted off. So it was the beginning of the era when they'd started to use the courts and they'd been using the courts for a long time, but in nasty and horrible ways to attack unionists. And, of course, the Howard government, through their minister, Reith, 
had been rolling out these new amendments to laws to try and attack trade unionists. So they managed to injunct off some of the a lot of the MUA, and the trade union com- community in Melbourne went right. Well, stuff that we'll just get everybody down and have a community picket line. And on the really famous night in question, for me, I'd been up at the Darling Harbour um, picket line. It was very, very exciting. And then at 6 o'clock, Canberra was due to come off the picket line, or the Canberra workers, and the Wollongong workers arrived. And very, very exciting because we basically saluted each other. We Mm. got in the bus, came back to Canberra. Wollongong took over. And as we were coming back to Canberra, phone calls were coming through. And remember, this is before mobiles and stuff, so we're sort of getting this stuff over the radio or, you know, the bus driver got messages and whatnot. Can't quite remember how. Must have had some mobiles at the time. That things were hiding up in Melbourne. And what had happened, everybody knew that there'd be a huge police attack. And um, so thousands of supporters had come in, like like... They estimate three to 4,000, and they linked arms and stayed there all night. As we got back to Canberra late at night, reports were coming through. And the next morning, we get woken up really early to say that there'd been a victory. <laughs> what had happened was that the state government in Victoria, um, which, of course, was a Liberal one at the time, had brought in just about every cop from every part of Victoria, thousands of cops. They'd essentially just closed rural police stations and sent them down for a full-on battle. And the story from all the comrades who were there at the time was that there was 4,000 people linking arms right in front of them, like within right within centimetres apart, was the front line of the cops. And the cops were all getting ready with their batons to bash the hell out of the picket line. So it would have been a really scary situation. Well, it was scary from what you hear. And it was all looking as if it was ready to attack. And suddenly the word from the cops went up. They looked to their left. They looked to their right. And there's footage of this. And the signal was to march off. So suddenly they turned to the right or the left and marched off. And the picket line was watching in amazement. Because what had happened is that the, the CFMU, the construction union, had got as many members as they could from their city sites on that Saturday morning to um, amass a, a at, at a couple of building sites. And then they just marched down en masse, surrounded the police behind them, and they were led by Johnny Cummins, who was you know, a legendary CFMU leader, an old BLF leader, who had a huge authority, and he just brought the construction workers down almost like a military tactic, surrounded them, and then the cops knew they'd been outnumbered. And at that stage, they turned and marched off. And everyone thought, my God, we've achieved a victory. And it was immensely exciting for everybody there, but, of course, around the country, because it showed what workers can do. Well-organised, disciplined workers were able to outsmart and outwit the uh, highly armed police force that was ready to attack. Hmm. And it was that particular victory then that turned the tides for the dispute. Hmm. Oh, that's brilliant. 
And um, yeah. the, the kind of next kind of thing aspect is I wanted to kind of just hear your guys' comments because um, one of the sort of, in, in especially in terms of its kind of lessons for kind of May Day, and, and I kind of want to hear about, you know, the kind of experiences of the picket line and this dispute and what it says about the important idea of workers' control of society. Yeah, well, one of the things that was really clear was that the MUA could not win without unity. They required unity to win. And they began to realise, and, you know, we've, known, we've always known this, that they would never win the dispute with, you know, such a highly, um, with the huge amount of money that they were, you know, this was a company that had its own funds plus the whole support of the Liberal government. You know, so the whole apparatus of the state was ready to be used if necessary. Workers and their leaders knew that they couldn't win this if we had continued to have petty disputes amongst ourselves. We had to be united. We had to have accepted leadership. And we had to be disciplined. And these discussions about how to do this were happening everywhere. Now, if the MUA or the ACTU had just gone, well, we decide everything, you don't get to say anything, blah, 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 we know that that always leads to um, confrontation. So what had happened is that the MUA and the ACTU allowed, to some extent, each picket line to be run in a fairly democratic way and to make its decisions from within a framework. So as each group of workers came down, you were essentially inducted in, but you were part of the process. So just as an example, at the Darling Harbour one that I was at, there was a huge um, banner of a, of a penis <laughs> that had been erected and underneath it had, you know, you know up your ass, Corrigan, or words to that effect, and, um, or Patrick's or something. And anyway, some of the feminists and the, and the gay and the, the queers that came down to the site said, oh, God, that's really offensive, you know, mm. that's really oppressive and offensive. Anyway, the anyway was a bit shocked because they thought it was quite good. <laughs> they thought it was, you know, a real expression of militancy. And um, and so we had this debate. And before the, well, long before the end of the day, through the debate, the anyway, who, of course, were the accepted leaders of the picket line, said, hmm, right, so if we keep this up, um, we're going to have sections of our supporters really upset with us and it's going to cause disunity. So they pulled it down. And it was just it's just one little example, but it was, you know, an impressive example because I thought it was really great. My supporter had painted it. But it was a small example of how those sort of things can work. And if the dispute had gone on, we would have had, you know, and, and some, some did, you know, there would have been committees to provide food, there would have been committees to start organising fundraising, um, and there was, of course, a, a certain amount of fundraising because to keep the workers on strike, well, they, they were locked out, but to keep the workers at the picket line, um, people were losing money. So you begin to see ad hoc organisations that start to make decisions, <clears throat> that start to work out how to um, move forward and, and keep things going and fundraise and so on and so forth. Um, the dispute didn't end up going as long as that, but it was, get, it was going to get there. And, and I think that's the sign. The sign is that with unity, people coming together, a democratic operation, 
um, the setting up of committees that actually have a meaningful role, blah, 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 you can begin to see how workers' organisations could actually operate and organise society in the longer term. That's the potential of it. So you see the seeds of that, and, of course, then you have a couple of victories which boost, boost morale and, and energy. People start to want to commit more and play a bigger role. So people learn all these skills, leadership and so on and so forth, um, as long as it's kept democratic and everyone has a say. So I think they were the sort of things that we saw in that short period. That's really interesting too, that sort of political cross-pollination that you talk about with the... Uh the uh, the incident of the phallus banner, and it reminds me a bit of um, that great um, film about uh, lesbians and gays support the miners and that kind of yes. that cross pollination that happened there during the miners' strike. Very similar, very very similar. In fact, I love that film. I can't think of what it's called, but I love that it's film. It's called Pride. <laughs> yeah, Pride. Pride. Of course, of course. <laughs> and, and you know, like because that that I, I think Pride is actually a more modern example of the film itself, I mean, because, of course, that dispute happened 10 years earlier than the one I'm talking about. But it's a great example of how working-class people actually can unite and support each other, even though they're quite diverse in background, you know, and orientation. So, yeah, and I think we saw glimpses of that on that MUA picket line. Hmm. And, um, Sue, do you kind of have any kind of concluding comments you'd like to kind of make? especially in terms yeah, of the yeah, significance yeah. So, of this dispute? Yeah, well, I think that that is... You know, that is the significance of May Day, of course. May Day celebrates these um, workers' struggles and the potential, the potential to move beyond. And you sort of lose that a bit in today. You know, here we are, what, 23 years later, um, where the unions are facing, you know, dire consequences, where there's been huge bureaucratisation and workers don't have a a real say in most of their unions, you lose that focus a little bit and you begin to think, oh, you know, oh, what role can they really play? But uh, I think I think the fact that these are recent historical events, that many of us, certainly older, you know, a lot of older comrades really, um, but they're recent and they're enough to show that um, united we can do these things. And that's actually what May Day should celebrate and that's actually what we should sort of look back to and feel that we can rebuild these um, very important groups of struggle. So, yeah, I think that's a lesson in actual fact, that despite all of the massive onslaught of capitalism that we're seeing at the moment, um, there are always nooks and crannies and cracks that we need to fight, exploit and fight against and, and build up opposition to and not be demoralised by the fact that, you know, we have been through hard times in recent days. You know, things change. <laughs> things change very quickly, as we saw under COVID, and they can when people get united and fight back. Mm-hmm. We've always got the numbers on our side. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the MUA dispute showed that. You know, a lot of... There was 4,000 at the Melbourne picket line, but there were hundreds of thousands in support, and if things had got more nasty, a lot more people would have shown up. Mm. 
All right. Well, thank you um, very much um, for that, Sue. I think, yeah, it was very expiring. I kind of like hearing firsthand um, from your experiences and your memories of this kind of amazing um, 1998 um, um, waterfront kind of dispute. Um, in fact, we're going to, um, following this, um, we'll go, we're going to be playing, uh, we'll play a song by Roll On by The Living End, which was actually based on on that um, that whole historical dispute. Great. Good. Thanks heaps, Sue. Thank you. All right. Yeah, Sue Bull there, uh, veteran trade unionist and someone who, as we've heard, um, helped organise solidarity out of Canberra with the uh, picketing waterfront workers in 98. But, um, yeah, oh, sorry, sorry about that. Um, I'll just go play a quick announcement. And as I kind of um, said before, we'll go play a quick song by The Living End, um, which was... Um, about well, I actually have. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've listened to the song before, but I didn't actually know it was about the 1998 um, waterfront kind of dispute. Uh, have a listen again with fresh ears. Okay, you're listening to Green. Just play a quick announcement, and then we'll play the song afterwards. This is Irene Bolger, former secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. It is 7.41 a.m. And we just did a, um, an interview with um, Sue Bull about the 1998 MUA um, dispute. And now we're going to be, um, for the next three minutes, um, we'll play um, Roll On by The Living End, which was, which is an Australian um, punk band, which actually this song, Roll On, um, Zane tells me, um, was based based on the 1998 dispute. So I um, hope you enjoy.
tomorrow meet your new replacement sign. So that was Roll On by The Living End. And now we're going to be going on to straight into our second interview for the program. Um, on the line, we have, we have Shin, Shin Yimon, who is part of the Victorian Myanmar Youth, um, who we previously interviewed, um, for our program. Because as our listeners uh, might be aware, there's a whole ongoing mass movement in Myanmar right now of mass resistance, um, against, um, the, um, the military coup. Um, which is still ongoing. And so we have um, Shin on to talk about the latest kind of developments. So good morning, Shin. Good morning. Um, so I guess kind of kind of to start is, um, can you give us, I guess, a bit, I guess, of the summary, I guess, of the current situation and I guess some of the new developments that have, I guess, happened, I guess, in the kind of past week in terms of what's happening in Myanmar in terms of this ongoing expiring resistance against the military coup. All right. um, Since the coup happened, there has been some developments um, regarding the political. Like, um, past week, we can, like, past two weeks, we can see that there has been, like, uh, the forming of national union government by... um, by the CRPH, the committee representing the Yidangsu Lotto. And um, and another thing what happened is that there has been the ASEAN leaders meeting held in Jakarta, Indonesia on the 24th of April 2021. These are the recent epic for the last week. Hmm. And, uh, uh, right. I, I decide, are you, are you, um, you just keep continuing, that's all good. Yes, it's good. It's all good. Okay. Well, what and um in terms of in terms of kind of the response to these kind of developments, what has I guess been the kind of extent in terms of like what is I guess happening around the protest movement in response? Because we know in Myanmar that there's been massive kind of protests um, against this military coup, and of course the military has responded with the most kind of severe kind of repression. I guess what can you kind of tell us on terms of what's been happening kind of there? Um, right. For the protest, yes, we Burmese, the Myanmar civilians, have been keep protesting and then keep um, banging their pots and pans and then they, they have been, like, doing different kinds of strikes and way of protest. But what happened in our country is um, for the um, some rural area, like Shan State and Chen State, the military, they, they have been using the airstrikes and the um huge weapons and then the shotguns 
to um, crack down the protests and then crack down the violences. And another thing that's happening is the police and then the military people, they just stop the civilians when they're on the road and then they check their phone and even their, like, uh, social media accounts, and if they see some evidence that uh, someone is joining the protest or doing the protest, they just arrest. Or some sometimes they even say that, like, uh, if you don't want to be arrested, you have to um, pay that much amount of money. It's just kind of like a um, terrorism act, and it's not the way of um, cracking down the protest. And I don't think it's the um, right way. And that's why, yes, uh, we have been like our Myanmar citizens have been living under the fear of these things and then yes until now like more than 700 people have been killed and more than 3,000 people have been detained. Hmm. And I guess the kind of next kind of question is I guess what in in terms of this um, the formation I guess of this um, national unity government which I think you describe um, which your group, I guess, describes as representing the pro-democracy kind of civilian voices in Myanmar. Mm. And I guess, what can you tell us about what are, uh, who make, what are some of the groups that make, um, what are, has been some of the groups within um, civil society Burma that make up this, um, this national unity government? And what is, I guess, some of the demands that they're kind of fighting for in the, in the interim, in terms of what, um, in terms of next steps? Yes, the National Unity Government is the body claiming to be the legitimate government of the, our country, Myanmar. And um, it exists in a parallel with the State Administration Council by the military junta. And then the structure of NUD, it, it was formally announced by the um, CRPH on the 16th April. And um, yes, they advised the international community to work directly with them in the relation to official government business. And, um, yeah, their aims are for the democracy rights and the gender equality and the basic human rights and the equality and self-determination, like collective leadership, diversity, social harmony, solidarity, and non-discrimination, and the protection of the minority rights. And, yes, they will be the legitimate government for us, um, formed with, like, from different um, ethnicities, like, without any gender discrimination, like various gen- um, men and women from different um, backgrounds. And, yes, even the youth are um, included in that government. And we are so proud to see that. And the next kind of question I kind of want to ask is, I want to sort of go into what's sort of been happening in, well, I just want to kind of hear, I best guess, some of the comments, um, because I know that... This whole, um, for, for you personally and also a lot of, um, Burmese who are currently kind of living in Australia is I kind of want to know about the impacts that this kind of movement and this military coup is having for those who currently kind of live in, in Australia, uh, especially for a lot of the, um, the youth. I've, I've heard reports that, um, there are fears that you, um, that you might not be able to come back, um, to the country. There's, there's the discussions about whether um, people in um, um, Burmese um, who are currently living in Australia should seek asylum, uh, especially because of 
some of you have been involved in protesting against the military coup uh, and organising protests here in Econ Australia. I kind of want to hear a bit more about those kind of impacts. Yes, there has been many impacts for the uh, students living in Australia. Like, um, yes, for us, like, and our organisation, and as we have been, like, actively participating in these kind of movements. So it's sure that if we go back to our country, we'll be detained and arrested on just on our uh, way back home, just at the airport. And then, yes, there are so many students staying in Australia who are worrying that, that their visa might be, might be expired within like one or two months and then they cannot go back to the country with that kind of situation. Yes, because like the situation is really complicated and then, they are sure that they will be detained and um, their family have to worry like their dead bodies might come back uh, when as soon as they go back. So, yes, they are living in worry um, for that. And another case is that there has been so many financial um, hardships for the students living in Australia as for me, um, as the banks in our country are like not um, some of the banks are like worried about their um, money systems and we can't um, take uh, withdraw our money and then there there has no like money transfer to uh, another country so like their families cannot support them anymore so like there's a 20 hour um, working working hour limit so the students cannot um, support themselves to pay their tuition fees and then like they are worried about their um, COEs might um, expire because because they can't pay the tuition fees and things. So yes, they are also fighting so many um, like they are also facing so many problems as an international students. Not only the not only studying and worrying about their family themselves, and then like like um, they like as as we think that the students that who are the same age like us have been detained, arrested. Some people even die, like some people, uh, some students who are younger than me uh, die because of just protesting without any, um, without any uh, weapons. So, yes, we have been facing with, like, um, major mental problems and financial problems, of course. <laughs> mm. um, um, just go quickly, um, Zane, do you have a quick question you want to ask? Um. I oh, just wondering what sort of um, other solidarity organising and protests there have been in uh, other countries around the world that you're aware of. Yes, yes, I do. Um, on the second of May, there will be a global Myanmar Spring Revolution campaign, and we as a Melbourneian and then VMI, the Victorian Burmese. Victorian Myanmar youth will organize a protest against the military coup on 1st of May on Federation Square, 2 to 4 p.m. And um, yes, please come and support us. And it's just um, the aim of the rally is to show Australia that um, our people, our ethnic minority, and even our students have been detained, um, tortured, and then like, um, and to there are some inhumane acts by these military government and then like uh, to show that, that Australia is also supporting our people. So please come and join us and then please support the civilians to get our freedom and our democracy back.
And yes, please also participate in other upcoming campaigns organized or co-organized by us too. Yeah, so there's uh, also a cultural event on Sunday at the Magnet Gallery. So yes, we are also planning this um, event at the Magnet Gallery on Sunday, which is y- yes. Yeah, um, yeah. What's happening there? Yes, it's a Magnet Gallery on Darklands, and then what's happening is that um, there will be. There's a photo gallery and photo exhibition, and yes, the, the photos by the um, the profit get by selling the photos will be donated to um, CDM, and then yes, um, for there there will be like cultural performance performances, tea, and um, our I mean, traditional snacks, and then yes, there will be some um, like photo ex- photo ex- exhibition, and then. Yes, we will be also organizing and we will explain what's happening and then like how can Australia help us for in this event too. And um, yes, the photos are by the local Australian uh, photographer, Tim Webster. And yes, we are so happy to um, work with him and then co-organize that event too. Yes. Hmm. All right. Well... Thanks um, very much um, for that. Um, do you have, I guess, any kind of final comments you'd kind of like to make? And also just repeat the details for Melbourne um, in terms of the location for the rally that's going to be happening on May the 1st tomorrow. For the May the, uh, rally happening on May the 1st tomorrow, it, it will be on Federation Square, 2 to 4 p.m., and for the photo gallery, which is happening on Sunday, the May 2nd, it is the Magnet Gallery in Docklands, and it will be 2 to 6 p.m. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Um, thank you very much um, 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 for that. Um, and, um, yeah, I think it's definitely a very expiring kind of development, like everything that is happening in Myanmar, especially all the, the kind of expiring kind of resistance um, against the military coup. And I think it's very brave, um, especially for you and um, your group, that the fact that you're, um, you're so consistent in organising solidarity. Um, so we you all the best and we st- definitely stand in solidarity with your struggle. Thank you. And, um, yes, please come and support us for our upcoming rallies and then the photo gallery event. Yep. Thanks. All right. Thanks again, Shin. Okay. All right. Um, so we'll just um, speaking to Shin Ye Mon um, from the Victorian Myanmar Youth um, about some of the current kind of developments um, that is currently happening in Myanmar against uh, the military coup, and also about the number of upco- um, some of the upcoming kind of solidarity events. So I definitely recommend tomorrow at two p.m. at the Federation Square. It's um, appropriately going to be on May Day um, because I think one of the more, more I guess, expiring kind of things um, that has come out of Myanmar has been the actual levels of kind of working class organisation that has stepped up in response, like the fact that we're seeing general strikes. And one of the kind of more interesting kind of comments as well um, that has sort of come from some of the some of the youth activists, um, because we um, we had a forum recently on Myanmar um, organised by Green Left, and one of the sort of comments that sort of came out of it is this idea that um, because the military is 
has such significant economic control over the country. In fact, they have, they have a monopoly on most of the key economic kind of sectors. And that's one of the ways, um, that they, the movement has found in terms of their, of their active kind of resistance against, uh, against the coup is the fact their ability to withdraw their labor and the fact that workers have been able to go on strike have realized, are starting to get a realization of the, of a bit of a sense of their collective power, I think is very expiring and I think a very, especially for us as, um, as socialists. Okay. Well, well, it's getting close. It's, um, it's around 8 a.m. Um, so I'll just play a quick announcement and we'll go on to the Green Left activist calendar. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and it is now time for the activist calendar. Now, there's a, <laughs> this is a bit funny, so I kind of want to clarify, I guess, a few sort of things. Um, I just wanted to talk about, just quickly go on, for, um, go about the May Day rallies, because there's actually going to be two work, um, May Day rallies happening in Melbourne this weekend. And it seems to me that both are actually legitimate rallies to go to. Um, so for the first, um, for the first of May tomorrow at 12.30 p.m., um, there'll be a May Day rally in March organized at the Shrades Hall at 12.30, um, at 12.30 p.m. Um, now on, it's been organized by Workers Solidarity, but it has some support from some trade unions, including, um, including the Migrant Kind of Workers Center. Now, the 2nd of May, which is Sunday, May 2nd, there's going to be another May Day rally in March, but that's more, for our listeners, you're probably used to the traditional kind of May Day kind of March of, you know, the festival kind of atmosphere with the, with the sausage sizzle and, uh, and so on. So that's going to be the feature of the Sunday, the 2nd of May rally, because it's being organized by the typical kind, um, by the usual kind of May Day kind of committee. So that's, that's clear enough. As far as I know, there's no rally that's actually being prioritised more than the other in terms of broader sort of movement forces. In fact, Victorian Trades Hall, as far as I know, is sharing both um, the 1st of May and the 2nd of May. So, yeah, it's it's got to be really be depend on what your sort of availability and time is. And for me personally, I'm going to be going to both. But, yeah, it's just sort of like it's a bit of a weird situation that... Um, and there's also apparently going to be, uh, there's also on Saturday the 1st of May, there is a, a May Day walking tour, which is going to be, where is the venue, um, Zane? That is a very good question. Oh, a gummy place at, in Carlton at 11am. Uh, 
chummy place. Chummy place in Carlton. So, yeah. Um, so that's just going through some, there's actually, there's probably more, more and other various sort of made events, but I'll just go proceed with the rest of the Green Left activist calendar. And just to let you know, today there's going to be a Union's Welcome Refugees um, Freedom Celebration Barbecue at 6.30pm. As far as I know, tickets are kind of sold out, but maybe you might have possibly booked a ticket earlier and maybe just a reminder that it's um, kind of happening. Um, on Saturday, May the 1st, there is going to be the Global Myanmar Spring Revolution at 2pm um, at Federation Square, and then there'll be a March to the Parliament. And then on Wednesday, May the 5th, um, there's going to be a student walkout to end refugee detention at 1pm at the State Library, organised by RISE. On Friday, May the 7th, there's going to be the Painter and Dockers Solidarity Concert for Timor-Leste, and, and that's going to be at 7pm at the MUA, 46-53 Island Street in West Melbourne. On Saturday, May the 8th, there's going to be a rally, Keep Fighting for Refugees and Matadori Detention Now, and that's going to be at 2pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. And then on on Sunday, May the 9th, there's a refugee fundraiser, the Welcome Social, at 2pm at the Howler, um, 7 to 11 Dawson Street, Brunswick. And then on Tuesday, May the 11th, there's going to be a webinar, Kurdish Solidarity in the Biden Era, and that's going to be happening at 6.30pm, and it's been organised by Green Left, so if you go on the Green Left website, you can should be able to find the details. And then on Saturday, May the 15th, the Green Left is going to be having its 30th anniversary trivia night, and that's going to be at 6pm at the MUA Hall, 46 Island Street, West Melbourne. Um, and then the last kind of event just want to note is on Friday the 21st um, is going to be, May 21st is going to be the climate strike at 1pm at Treasury Garden. So, yep, we'll probably go into more detail about some of the other events in the Green Left Access calendar, but I sort of wanted to pass on to Zane who wanted to sort of do just a bit of a plug for um, Green Left's Matt Ward's um, album corner. Uh, yes, I will do that in one second, but I just wanted to remind people, uh, last week we interviewed Pora Bibi uh, about uh, an update on West Papua, and we heard about the ongoing struggle there, which is frankly quite grim. The Indonesian military are just totally barbaric in their the repression of the West Papuan people. Uh, there is a exhibit called Before the Genocide, a Celebration of West Papuan Culture and Struggle, and that's happening at the Collingwood Yards. The launch party is tomorrow from 3 till 9 p.m., and then there's another viewing on Sunday, uh, May the 2nd, from 1 p.m. till 6 p.m., and that's at the Collingwood Yards. So get along to that if you can, and I will just try and track down... Um, Matt Ward's monthly um, album roundup. So Matt Ward, we interviewed last year. He, he does a, a monthly um, roundup at Green Left of new political albums. And this month is 10 new albums that oppose all forms of war. So there is a British punk band called Burning Flag. They've dropped an album called uh, Matador. And, um, yeah, they've got a um, 
female lead singer, Holly Searle, and apparently it's pretty staunch and you should get around it. Um, there's another veteran punk band called The Members who've dropped an album called Bed Sit Land. And there's another album called Spotify is Surveillance by Evan Greer. Um, Evan Greer is trans and there's another, there's a track on the album called The Tyranny of Either Or, an open letter to transphobes. Uh, there's an album called Stars Rock Kill Rock Stars and that is, um, in, that is like a, a compilation with cover versions of songs by celebrated acts such as Bikini Kill. We're also more consciously saying we are feminist, queer, and political than we did 30 years ago, said label founder Matthew Moon. Uh, and then there's another one, various artists, Diavoli, uh, bringing some much-needed feminist politics to dance music, is techno artist Ota, with her song The Future is Female, found on the Noam Chomsky sampling compilation Diavoli. There is also 100% Three Fingers in the Air Punk Rock, an international hardcore punk compilation to help support the Food Not Bombs Collective in Myanmar. Uh, so that is worth checking out. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory. There's an album called First Farewell by Peggy Seeger. And there's also another album called Now by Damon Locks. So, yeah, lots of anti-war stuff, cool feminist stuff, different uh, different genres. Amazonia by Jean-Michel Jarre. Uh, so, yeah, check it out. Greenleft.org.au. Ten new albums that oppose all forms of war. Okay, um, I'm just going to go, um, thanks for that, Zane, and I'm just going to go play a quick announcement, um, as quick as I possibly can, and we'll go, go on to our third and final interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 855am. Okay, so this is Shebop. And so is this. And this. Shebop, a program that explores feminist issues. Tune in Mondays, 10.30am, for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. Okay, you are listening to Green Left Radio, FreeCR, and on the line we have Divya Garg, um, who is a student from Lucknow, Uttar Pradesh in India, um, where many of her family and friends live. And currently she is um, a PhD student slash scholar in media and communications and a sessional tutor as well, and she joins us um, today. So um, welcome to the program, um, I'm Divya. Hi, thanks for having me here. Well, um, I guess to maybe start off, I guess the discussion is, you know, we're, we're horrified, I guess, to hear about this 
massive kind of second wave of COVID in India, um, which is ripping through small towns. And of course, we know hospitals and crematoriums have run out of space. And I guess what can you, I guess, comment about, I guess, the chaos and the trauma that is currently being faced by the people and I guess some of the, the issues that have kind of been po- popped up as a result of this? Um, right. It's like you said, um, like, uh, despite a year, what is known as the second wave has just like struck the country very unprepared. And the cases are like rising uh, like anything. And so the official reports are that um, there are over 300,000 daily cases of COVID infections um, and more than 200,000 deaths overall. But these are also massively underreported because right now there's no testing happening because they've run out of kids to test that. And um, uh, states are also controlling the uh, number of cases uh, being reported. And um, in many cases, um, they're actually covering up crematoriums and uh, hiding the number of the, de- uh, the actual number of dead people um, to sort of uh, play the false narrative that um, that there are not in a, that there are not as many deaths as people are claiming to be, except that uh, people are talking and sharing stories amongst themselves about how everyone is losing uh, people in their own families, immediate families, uh, to this particular um, thing. And it's not that. Uh, it's not they're dying because of COVID. It's they're dying because of lack of resources, because the public health infrastructure is so poorly done. People are dying because there's no oxygen, there's no um, there's no um, medicines, uh, there are no doctors to administer life support, and so it's it's entirely uh, a man-made disaster in the sense that uh, the central government, the BJP, has uh, not been prepared for it at all. And uh, even now, in many cases, they have continued to hold election rallies and events like um, religious pilgrimages, um, which have led to mass uh, infections in places where uh, more than 300,000 people are gathering together. Um, I mean, it's it's very hard to describe, like, because um, I saw in many newspapers how people have called it an apocalypse, that if the apocalypse had a face, it would be how people in India are right now. Um, so it is officially reported that one person is dying of COVID every five minutes, um, and the actual numbers are probably even higher. So perhaps for uh, every two minutes, someone is dying of that. And so... It is chaos and trauma, like you call it, um, and it's it's very hard. Um, well, uh, that, uh, well, we can yeah. go get, get proceed, I guess, to the next kind of question, mm-hmm. um, because yeah. one of the kind of things that's been happening, I guess, is this whole question of... Um, um, of vaccination and I know for example for my partner um, at least her parents have um, in India have gotten um, have gotten the vaccine but on that whole context um, the Indian government from my knowledge is entirely dependent I guess on two manufacturers the Serum Institute of India and Bharat Biotech and of course both are being allowed to roll out two of the most expensive vaccines in the world to the poorest people of the world and Right now, that one of the, the more interesting sort of announcements is they, they announced that they will be selling these um, vaccines to private hospitals at a slightly elevated price and then to state governments at a somewhat lower price. And, of course, the idea that um, that a country should be at the whim, should actually have to pay for vaccines, I think is quite ridiculous. And it means that these companies, I think, stand to make a massive profit. Um, and, of course... 
one of the things, really, it seems to me that within India that the main underlying impetus of the vaccination campaign, because really the only, seems to be the only, um, one of the few solutions would be, um, to actually deal with this would be the vaccine, um, would be the vaccination. And I guess what do you kind of see what your comments, I guess, on some of these dynamics? Right. Um, you're entirely correct in the privatization of um, vaccines and um, the fact that these are being overpriced and sold back to the people who are the poorest. And this obviously creates a massive class divide because who can afford these? Um, in fact, it's uh, it's horrifying how they actually promised an election in one of the, the recent state elections that they held in Bengal that the, that the BJP said that they would actually offer free vaccines if they were voted for, which is ridiculous because vaccines should be free for everyone and not an a campaign promise. And so um, it is most definitely unimaginable the kind of privatization of vaccine, vaccines that has happened and um, how it is being sold at such high prices. Um, in fact, like the fact that we're running out of oxygen has also become such a class issue now because uh, so oxygen is also being sold and being made available at extremely high prices. And so it literally means death for the poor sooner uh, because they cannot afford these amenities and services, which are the basic right and necessity of every human being. Um, so, yeah, it is very ridiculous. And it is the result of the privatization of the health sector, which is completely failing and has failed in India. And I think I just want to make a quick comment that, you know, the Australian government is also completely complicit um, because the Australian government has actually been consistently voting um, against waivers um, on on vaccine intellectual property, which is actually preventing India from being able to have the capacity to be able to produce its own uh, vaccine. So I think, yeah, it's um, the Australian government. I just want to note that the Australian government is actually quite complicit in this whole crisis that's happening in India right now. But then going into, I guess that goes right into sort of the next question. Um, And this is sort of something a bit, when I was sort of reading about the crisis, this is sort of something that shocked me a bit. Of course, I've always known, I've always sort of had the acknowledgement that the Modi regime is basically a Hindu kind of fascistic kind of regime. But one of the sort of interesting comments is he the Modi regime is like literally telling 1.3 billion people not to complain. Um, there is mm-hmm. all, there's these all examples of guess of media and repression and gaslighting of people who are actually criticizing the Indians government response to, um, to COVID-19. And, you know, there is now over 200,000 COVID-19 deaths in India. And the basically, um, the, the Modi-aligned India media outlets are basically just sort of saying, well, the, the COVID-19 um, the COVID-19 has collapsed our healthcare system. Um, but, of course, the, the question is, the, this so-called system they keep talking about barely existed to begin with. And I guess what can you – I want to sort of hear your comments on your criticism of what the Modi government has actually done in response to this crisis. Right. Um, well, in terms of the reporters, most definitely uh, what you call gaslighting, um, that is definitely going on, and even more than that. So, like the Solicitor General said, that people who are asking for oxygen are being crybabies, and um, uh, the Yogi government, the BJP government in my state, um, actually re- uh, uh, arrested someone for uh, actually requesting for help uh, uh, because uh, they were rumor mongering. Apparently, according to them, they're reporting hospitals who are. are uh, uh, 
are saying that they're running out of oxygen and reporting shortages of certain equipment because they're like, but everything is normal. And so they're actually threatening uh, hospitals and people who are sharing uh, help and sources on social media instead of actually uh, doing anything to help. They're actively contributing to the worsening of the state uh, of the situation right now. Um, like, like, of course, they were massively underprepared, but at this point, I would say that they are actually actively contributing to murders. I would say it is genocide because it is, they are completely and entirely responsible for what is happening there. And, um, like, for instance, they have not halted this 20,000 crore um, Central Vista project, which has been cited under essential services. And so they're continuing with, like, what they call development activities, and uh, which takes so much money. Um, this one particular fund uh, that was collected last year, which is known as the PMKs, there was no audit allowed on that. It was technically for the pandemic by the citizens' money, apart from the taxes that they pay. And even then, um, no one knows what happened to that money or what's even being done to it now because they did not allow it to be uh, transparent. Um, so, yeah, in every way possible, they are actively completely complicit in what is going on. And on top of that, they're actually got, uh, gaslighting their citizens by saying you are uh, reporting, you are just like uh, falsifying that people are dying or, you're, uh, or that things are so bad and things are not that bad, except that they are. They're so bad. It's just like, um, yeah. Yes. Like, I don't know anyone who's, who's not, like, at least had an immediate family member being infected and in many cases uh, lost to COVID. Hmm. And I guess what one, just one quick comment I guess I wanted to sort of make is um, I remember the, it was um, quoted in the article um, in an article I read recently um, that basically Modi was early on before this whole crisis um, had happened was actually bragging about how successful um, India's response to kind of COVID-19 um, was and of course I do remember that actually India had probably one of the most probably one of the worst sort of lockdowns um, because basically yeah. they locked down the the entire country with not knows and of course I support um, lockdowns as a measure to um, to deal with um, to contain COVID but of course in the case of India it was definitely one of the worst implemented ones um, and in fact well, it was also raised a lot of issues especially with the issues of migrant labour and those who didn't necessarily work in um, traditional sort of um, um, sort of um, urban kind of jobs. Um, I guess the next kind of question um, and we're sort of running a bit out of time um, is what can you tell us about how this crisis has personally impacted you and others like here in Australia who have family and friends over overseas. Um, there have been a lot of stories coming out of the news about friends and relatives um, searching for beds and oxygen tanks through social media. And, of course, um, union students are asking universities to defer fees so they the money can be used to help family back home overwhelmed by COVID-19. Um, right. I can, I can just give my own example perhaps to shed some light on that. Um, like, um, like, because I am also here, I think we've, I feel very helpless and frustrated, uh, not being able to do anything and just seeing everything. Um, and so I had a very close friend, my housemate's partner actually, who was, um, uh, infected and he couldn't even get tested and then we spent like 12 hours trying to get, uh, call every hospital in Delhi to get him a hospital bed um, and once his oxygen levels dropped drastically um, and so 
it was very, very d- difficult um, to be able to do that. And on top of that, I keep getting other bad news. So my grandfather has also tested positive. Uh, my brother-in-law is also exhibiting COVID symptoms, and my sister is six months pregnant. Um, so it, it is, I just, I don't know what to do about it. Uh, I have been paying the medical, ex- trying to pay the medical expenses of friends uh, who are caught and to sort of share links uh, uh, about where they can find certain things. But at the end of the day, I just don't know what to do and what is helpful and what is not. And I obviously cannot do enough. So there is there is an overall very helpless, frustrated, um, frustrated sort of feeling. And yeah, like... I don't know what to say. I wish I could go back, but that is not possible at this point. And um, it would be, and, and even worse as an international student in, who is in my last year of PhD, I would not be able to come back. So then, and at this point, of course, I'm not even thinking, I don't want to think about that anymore because I'm like, fuck my PhD, I just want to go. Um, but yeah, so all of that is definitely, definitely at the back of, not even at the back of my mind, at the forefront of my mind. And like, yeah, that is that is how it is. Hmm. Well, thanks um, very much um, for that, um, Divya. I think you've given a very kind of good kind of because I think it's very important. I think especially in terms of free CR to actually hear from the voices of people who are affected um, by by these recent kind of political developments and crisis and this health crisis that's happening in India right now. And um, yeah, do you have it? I guess any final comments you'd like to kind of make? Well, I mean, I don't know, and this probably sounds idealistic uh, at this point, um, but the only thing that has given me, well, I wouldn't say hope, but like, I guess some sort of um, strength at this point is to see common people's responses uh, to this. Obviously, our government has entirely, entirely failed us, and by government, all the governments all around the world, uh, whether in terms of not allowing resources or patenting, and which just shows me how colonialism was never over. It's just become different. And the idea of third world nations hides the fact that these are previously colonized nations who do not have the resources in the first place because of imperialism, because of colonialism. But all of that aside, um, the one thing that does give me strength is how common people have sort of come together. In many cases, people at the risk of their own lives are arranging for things and going around and helping, um, whether it is... uh, uh, the Dalit people who are largely responsible for cremating the bodies with uh, who are doing so. And it is, it is sad, of course, they shouldn't have to. Uh, but the fact that it is the common people helping each other at this point, um, I, I, I know it's to sound, after this whole thing, I just want something to sort of end on. And that's the only thing, like when I tell my students, I hear from them. And I think that's, that's the only faith I have in humanity left anymore, that these people want to do better. And so I don't know if that helps, but perhaps that's the, that's the final note, yeah. Hmm. No, thank, um, I think that's all, all good. Um, thank you very much, um, Divya, for being on our program again. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thanks, Thanks. Divya. And yeah, I hope your grandfather is okay. It's pretty, it's pretty disturbing yeah. to, yeah, to hear of your helplessness. So. Thank you. Hmm. Okay. Well, we've got to quickly, um, so we'll just interview um, Divya Garg, who is uh, a PhD um, student, um, from Uttar Pradesh in um, India, talking to us about um, the whole the whole COVID nineteen crisis that's engulfing India at the moment. Um, but we're getting right into the end of um, the program now. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week, and that um, 
Remember, it's um, International Workers' Day tomorrow. Um, try to get to some of the May Day rallies and the events, especially the Myanmar protests tomorrow at 2 p.m. at Federation Square, which I think will be quite significant. And, yeah, stay tuned for, um, for be, I think it might be Beyond Zero Emissions after this or might be in a rerun. I'm not sure. You're going to find out soon enough. You'll find out soon enough. Oh, um, yeah. Anyway, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Catch you next week. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.